Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 392, Becoming Jewish, then Becoming a Rabbi. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we're excited to continue our series of episodes exploring conversion to Judaism, this time with somebody who converted to Judaism and then became a rabbi. Our guest today is Lisa Rappaport. But before we get started with our conversation, just a quick reminder that the month of Elul is here. It starts today, as this episode is being released, August 18th, 2023. And we hope that you'll participate in this year's edition of Judaism Unbound's Elul Unbound, which is an annual month-long exploration that happens during the final month of the Jewish year and that explores the feelings and the possibilities that we might have during this month leading up to the high holidays. You can learn more about our bonus podcasts, our Zoom gatherings, our three-week Elul mini-course, and other resources by heading to judaismunbound.com slash Elul. That's judaismunbound.com slash E-L-U-L. And now for today's conversation. Our guest today, Lisa Rappaport, converted to Judaism. But like some of our other guests in this unit, she didn't stop there. After converting, she eventually realized that she wanted to become a rabbi. So today we're excited to hear about both elements of her journey, becoming Jewish and becoming a rabbi. Lisa Rappaport is the spiritual leader of Congregation Beth Israel in Chico, California. She is also a rabbinical student in the Aleph Ordination Program of Jewish Renewal. And Lisa is what is called Erev Rav, Erev meaning evening, she is on the eve of becoming a rabbi. In other words, she's on the cusp of receiving rabbinic ordination, which is scheduled for January 2024. So in the sense that Elul is kind of like the eve of Rosh Hashanah, it makes sense that we are going to be talking today to somebody who is on the eve of becoming a rabbi. In addition to becoming a rabbi, Lisa Rappaport is already an ordained mashpia, or Jewish spiritual director. In 2019, she returned to Congregation Beth Israel, where she had been a congregant many years before, as its spiritual leader, after three years serving as rabbinic intern at Nativot Shalom in Berkeley, California. In addition to all these Jewish credentials, Lisa Rappaport also has an MA in Transpersonal Counseling Psychology from JFK University. Taken together, Lisa Rappaport has nearly 30 years of combined experience as an educator, counselor, administrator, and spiritual leader. And it's not something we really get into much in this conversation, but I think it's interesting and things that we have talked about before, and hopefully we'll talk about a lot more in the future, about the possibility of somebody becoming a rabbi after they have already gained all of that life experience. How is that different from folks who become rabbis and then gain the life experience? Lisa Rappaport is also a writer of poetry and the author of Divrei Nichum, Comforting Words During Times of Loss, an original collection of poems for mourners. 
And she is also the creator of Elul Tools, a daily interactive workbook for the month of Elul, appropriately enough. Lisa Rappaport's most important claim to fame and perhaps one day credential is that she has been a multi-time student in our Yeshiva. And so, Lisa Rappaport, welcome to the Judaism Unbound podcast. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You are a congregational rabbi in a relatively small town in California, and one would imagine a certain road as to how you got there. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the road through which you got there. Yeah, and I, I want to make sure to clarify because I, I will use the title Arab Rav. I, I am not officially a rabbi yet, but definitely in all for all intents and purposes, serving in the role. So my my journey to becoming a rabbi, yeah. So it, it's interesting because as I'm on the the eve, the Arab of becoming receiving smicha, which is a rabbinic ordination, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I'm also a Jew by choice. But what I'm really realizing, and this has come up a lot in Hashpa'a, which is Jewish spiritual direction. I am also a Mashpia, so I'm a, a Jewish spiritual director, but I also receive spiritual direction. I'm realizing that my mission on earth is to be a rabbi. I, and that's why I'm here. And to contribute to the the healing and transformation of of the world through a Jewish path. But you can't be a rabbi without being Jewish. And since I wasn't Jewish, there was a path of conversion that predated that. But I'm realizing that the rabbi piece is actually bigger for me than the conversion piece, if that makes sense. You know, Lex, in a class that we did together, I talked a lot about Rabbi Zushia, the, the Reb Zushia story, about being fully yourself, that, that when we meet our maker at the end of our lives, the Holy One of Blessing is not going to say, you know, why weren't you more like Moshe, or maybe more like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the Holy One will say, why weren't you more like Lisa? And Lisa is supposed to be a rabbi in, in this era, and I needed to be Jewish in order to do that. So that is my my journey. Well, as I'm thinking about it, by the way, like, sorry to distract us for a second, but there's this uh, really amazing story in the Talmud. It's, it's in the same uh, basic area as the famous story of the of the of the potential convert who comes to Hillel and Shammai and says, teach me all of Judaism while I stand on one foot. And there's a story on the same page where there's a person who overhears about all the really cool clothes that the high priest gets to wear and says, I want to be the high priest, and then comes to Hillel and Shammai and Shammai throws him out. But Hillel says, well, first you have to become Jewish. And so he kind of goes through this process and then he realizes that he can't become the high priest, but it, that's okay in the end. But but it actually is the story where he wanted to be the high priest before he became Jewish. That resonates very much, yes. You know, Lex will recall, um, we had to write a spiritual autobiography to get into rabbinical school. That is a very interesting exercise. And as I wrote that, I could see all of the steps that were leading me to that moment. Sometimes you don't figure out what you're going to be what you're going to be when you grow up until you're, you know, 40, uh, uh, the Rabbi Akiva model, you know, Rabbi Akiva, first century rabbi did not even learn the alphabet until he was 40. So that's my model. So I, you know, early in my life, there were indicators that that, that was something that was brewing. But the, the moment was when I was pregnant with my, um, my first child, and this was about 20 years ago, and I had been a dabbler and a seeker in every single tradition out there. I grew up in a non-Jewish secular home, which in some ways was really fantastic because it was absolutely liberating. I could I could pick and choose whatever I wanted to do, but it also didn't give me the anchor that I was looking for and that I wanted to provide for my daughter. 
So my secular, very secular atheist Jewish husband, I'm dragging him to the synagogue that I am now the spiritual leader of. Can we just check out this place? Because I want to have something for our children um, that they, they have. So they have a spiritual anchor because I didn't have that. And from the moment I walked into this very Hamish sweet little shul, which was absolutely the right place for me to start, because as I mentioned, I started from zero. I went to public schools, secular only education, had no religious training other than the dabblings I did as a college student in various things. From the moment I walked in, something was happening that I had been searching for for a very long time. I remember being young and my parents sending me to to church, mainly for childcare, like, oh, go to Sunday school. So we, we have a place for you to get a couple hours of childcare and, and longing and wanting to feel something in these churches and felt nothing. And we were in one particularly more fundamentalist leaning church. And the preacher said, oh, you know, everybody needs to be saved. And at, at the end of the service, we're going to go into these rooms and you can come and accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And I was sure this is it. This is going to be my moment. I'm going to have my big spiritual awakening. And like nothing happened. And it really devastated me. Um, and I, I sort of thought maybe my parents are right. Maybe there is no God. I felt continually pulled towards something. And um, when I, I really felt something quite deep in this synagogue in Chico. So one of the things that was was happening for me, and I think this is one of the gifts of being somebody who chooses Judaism as a mature adult who has kind of tried out other things, is I'm seeing things with very fresh eyes. So I am married to a, a Jewish man who had a bar mitzvah in the 50s and went through the motions and really didn't understand what any of it meant to him. So I'm reading it from the Siddur, and we this we use the Reconstructionist Siddur, which has really beautiful translations and kavanot. I had my own covenant and experiences I was bringing. I would say to him, like, oh, my gosh, do you see what it says here? My God, the soul you gave to me, it is pure. Like, I, that, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Don't you think that's amazing? I would say to my husband. And he'd say, wow, I never noticed that was there. I didn't read into it that deeply. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, and one of the things that started happening, which was so beautiful, and I think we had this kind of mutual reciprocal thing going on, I was coming to life as a Jew. I was also resuscitating my husband's Jewish soul. He was he was dead to Judaism. I mean, he, he was very culturally identified, but as far as religious spiritual practice or wanting to be a member of a synagogue, zero on the radar. But he was coming back to life. He was like, wow, wow you know, you're right. There is something really beautiful here. And so I I feel really great about the fact that um, I, I brought him back into his spiritual um, inheritance. So I think that's a really important point. There's so many things that arise in cases where people convert and they are married or in a long-term relationship with somebody who's Jewish. And I think one common assumption sort of distilled into a phrase is like, oh, she converted for marriage. That's a really layered and, and, and it's not, sometimes it's said neutrally. Sometimes it's said very much with a negative connotation to convey, ah, that person converted, but didn't really mean it. They did it for the practical purpose of having a family where everybody was Jewish, but like they, they just sort of dipped in the mikvah, in the ritual bath that makes you Jewish. They like did the process, but like it might not be so deep. I'm not saying that because it's true. I'm saying it because I think that 
is mobilized in conversation informally and sometimes even more formally institutionally, I'd kind of love to hear, do people presume, like, is it surprising to people when you say like, I was actually the one who really was excited <laughs> to go to synagogue and my husband was not. Um, or on the other, I mean, I could I could see it both directions. I'm just curious your experience with it. But like, I could imagine some people saying like, oh, wow, you weren't even Jewish and you were really interested. That's so fascinating. And I could imagine other people, maybe like secular Jews are like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, the person who grew up Jewish didn't want to go because, you know, synagogues are boring and whatever. And you, as you said, had fresh eyes and you were able to experience it in a way that was different from maybe a more stale norm of synagogue that may have been the case when people were growing up in Sunday school or whatever. But all that's to say, that's some possibilities. What's your actual lived experience with people's reactions when they hear like, oh, Lisa, you converted and you're in a relationship with somebody who's Jewish? I think there are some people who probably make the assumption that, oh, you you have a Jewish husband, you're going to convert so you can have a, like an authentic Jewish household, right? And you just did air quotes around authentic. Right. I think, though, in the progressive Jewish world, it's it's becoming more and more typical that people are on their own individual spiritual journeys. For instance, I'm working with a conversion candidate right now where only the mom in the family wants to convert. There's, there's dad, mom, two children. And dad's very supportive, but it's not his journey. And so I, I think it's more typical that, um, you know, and I'll just say, too, I asked myself when I was on the cusp of converting, I, I did some very deep discernment. Am, am I doing this because I have a Jewish husband? And very frankly, I said to myself, if Chaim, he was Harvey at the time, he essentially claimed his Hebrew name, Chaim, but Chaim said, if I, I said to myself, if Chaim were to, to die tomorrow, God forbid, would I still want to be Jewish? If he were no longer in my life, would I still want to be Jewish? That was a very important question to me because converting for marriage is not that, um, doesn't resonate that well for me, actually, because I'm I'm kind of on people having their authentic spiritual path. And it was a resounding, absolutely, this is me. This is, I think, meeting Chaim activated something that was ready to be activated, but it's independent of him as well. By the way, I'm, I'm curious a little bit about uh, Chaim's reaction, only because it's making me think of a story many, many, many years ago, when I kind of despaired of you know, I was I was imagining that I was going to marry somebody Jewish and I didn't meet anybody that I you know thought I was going to marry and I sort of despaired of it and I thought like okay well I guess I'll I'll date people that aren't Jewish it's fine it's totally fine and I started dating this woman and then I thought she wasn't Jewish but then she turned out to be Jewish and I'm sort of wondering like if your husband kind of had this experience like wait a second I I married somebody that wasn't Jewish and now all of a sudden she's Jewish and she's getting me or was he kind of embracing it from the beginning I think yes and all of it you know that it was it was really beautiful for him to reconnect but I think it was a little annoying too like why I don't want to go to synagogue why are you dragging me <laughs> to synagogue you know and and we made a pact with each other that we were going to go to synagogue every Shabbat for a year, even if we didn't feel like it. I mean, this was more my pact, I think, but that I, I made him join me in it. That's what God did too with the covenant, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. And something amazing happens when you go to synagogue every Shabbat for a year, you learn a lot of things and you learn like, oh, it's not so mysterious. There's actually a, a template. There's a formula here. I'm starting to get it. But, you know, that wasn't really what he, you know, the best way to spend a Saturday morning or a Friday night. But more and more, he got into it. 
I remember first meeting you when we were in the Aleph Rabbinical Program, overlapping as students. And I also remember learning that you converted, and there was a long distance of time between those two moments. It didn't occur to me, and I didn't ask. And, you know, one thing we've talked about in this unit is, like, people generally are discouraged by Jewish tradition to ask whether somebody has converted. Um, and I think that's pretty good that we don't badger folks on that front. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that to you that I didn't know you converted. And I, I'm i curious about how that lands. Because like, for some people, I think it could be like, wow, that's such a compliment. Ah, yes. like I passed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, so there is this way in which I, I could be saying, wow, you like, you passed. And also like you passed in the sense that I couldn't tell and like you are passing as X, but also like you passed in the like you passed the test. Like you, you you blend in. You are you are not thoroughly different enough from the space such that I would notice that you had ever not been in the space. I don't know that it's that much of a compliment, right? Like I I, I think it I think people sometimes say stuff like that, like, oh, you strike me as somebody who I never would have known you were anything other. But like I guess I'm curious, it feels to me, if if somebody were to say to me that some element of who I am that I hold dear, like, they didn't even know, and isn't that great that it was invisible, I would be like, well, do you think that it's bad? Like, do you (laughs) think that it's bad that I'm a Jew by choice? Like, is it good that that part of me was invisible? And so I guess I'm curious, like, how do you relate to that? Like, and this time, I've, I've been asking throughout this unit, we've been talking about the way in which when people convert... The traditional thing is their Hebrew name, they trace themselves to Abraham and Sarah, which is really empowering and amazing on one front. You are you are grafted not just to the current iteration of Judaism, but you are grafted all the way back to the starting point of the Jewish people, which is extremely cool. But it's also kind of done as a way to like replace the names of your parents who are not Jews with two paradigmatic Jews, Abraham and Sarah. And that feels funny to me. It like it feels like why do we have to erase them? And so I guess I'm curious like if somebody were to say to you as I just did like I didn't even know you were a convert. What's your relationship to that? I mean, yeah, I've had people say that a lot. Um or, or a lot of times they'll they'll say, "Oh yeah, I know that about you, but I totally forgot because you're so Jewish or you're so this or so that." And it really depends on on the person in the situation because sometimes it has that flavor of like cuz that would be a bad thing. But other times it's very comforting because there there are times, especially more in rabbinic spaces, I think, am I Jewish enough to be a rabbi, right? That's a big deal. So I don't take that lightly. I want to feel like I'm bringing my whole self to that title and that I'm bringing my Jewish self and my Jewish soul to that title. So in terms of the being called to the Torah as Elisheva Bat Avraham the Sarah, like, yes, it has that beautiful being tied back all the way to the beginning of our ancestral roots. And that's beautiful. And it is an immediate outing experience. You know, like, I don't know how people in whatever Kahal I'm in, Kahal being the congregation, are relating to that piece of information, right? I'm I'm hoping it's Either like it doesn't matter or like, wow, that's really beautiful because, you know, Jews by choice bring so much to this diversity of, of Judaism. You know, I don't know how I feel about that, but I have to say, Lex, I learned in one of your units in the, the queer Judaism's piece, and I don't remember exactly which video it was or audio podcast it was, that there's this um, movement towards calling people to the Torah as me bait rather than Benarbat for reasons of gender identity and not wanting to cause gender dysphoria. 
When I thought of myself being called to the Torah as Elisheva me Beit Avraham Basara, that had a, a whole resonance that suddenly I felt like I'm part of this amazing group of people who have made this choice for whatever reason over millennia of time. And it felt so much more comforting than being like this singular bot of Avraham and Sarah, which just felt lonelier to me, or, or it has that outing experience. Um, so I'm considering what it might be to be called to t- the Torah as Elisheva Mibet Avraham Basara. I'm part of an amazing house of other people who have a similar shared history. I was thinking that another option is that, uh, you know, all Jews, born Jewish, people who've converted should all sort of name their children Abraham and Sarah so that in the grandchildren generation, you won't be able to tell whether it's, no, it's, it's kind I, of joke, I met but, somebody who who has a Jewish father who's named Abraham and a Jewish mother who's named Sarah. And so then they're not a yeah, Jew by choice. Yeah, like, I we should do that too. more. We should, try to, we should try to make that happen more. But people have better reasons probably for how to name their children. Um I wanted to actually go back to the connection that you're making with uh, queer Jews in certain ways, because, you know, and I've talked to B'nai Lappi and, and other folks a lot about this idea that uh, B'nai has told a lot of amazing stories, one of which was, I call it like the Prometheus story, where she went into the closet to get rabbinical ordination from JTS to sort of bring her, bring that fire to her people, right? Bring Torah, the fire of Torah to her people. And... Binet also has talked about other ideas that when she started Svara, that she basically felt like the more queer folk can kind of get Torah, the more they'll be able to change Torah, in a sense, to change the experience of Torah, at least for the world more broadly for queer folk. And then we've, of course, also experienced, just like you described so beautifully, that something that is brought to the world for queer folk might turn out to be really powerful for people that converted, for example. So I'm kind of wondering, as you're on this eve of becoming a rabbi, if you can imagine or speculate, or even you already have plans, that you might be a different kind of rabbi than folks who are born Jewish. And and even in radical ways, I don't want to put ideas in your head that aren't already there, but I'm saying if they're already there, I want to know what they are, about what would it look like to have a world inhabited by many rabbis who have converted to Judaism? Thank you for that question. I have known for a while that my deployment as Reb Zalman, would say Reb Zalman is the, the founder of our uh, movement, our seminary, um, the In the Olive Program, that my deployment is where I'm really good and really talented, I think, is showing secular Jews that this tradition they want to turn away from because they don't think anything is there for them. It is ossified. It is patriarchal. Whatever the thing is that they think Judaism doesn't have for them, I am very good because of my enthusiasm and my fresh eye to translate and unpack for them. And people get very excited about, I, I love that you said that. I've never, I never knew that before. I never saw that in the prayer before. And it's the way I'm seeing it and bringing it that they're kind of getting reignited, like, oh, maybe, maybe Judaism has a lot to do about ecology. Wow, I never thought about that. Maybe there's a lot about social justice here. I, I didn't know that. And people get very ignited and excited, and I get excited by that. And so I think that that's my role, is to connect that bridge for secular Jews who have kind of, ah, I'm ready to toss this old tradition to the curb. 
So I'm really glad that you're becoming a rabbi. And also, like, I I will name my own struggles. And I have spent a lot of time sitting with the ways in which so much of our Jewish ecosystem is stratified around the things rabbis do and the things everybody else does. And the vast majority of the things, like, there's very few things that are associated with ritual, with ancientness that, like, most of the time are placed out of rabbis' hands and with the rest of the people. And so I'm, like, cynical about it. And I also realize that, like, as as somebody who's a Jew by birth and also somebody who's white and a guy and a, and a lot of other things, me becoming a rabbi was never for a sliver of a second, truly, about, like, me proving that I was legit to people. Like, like that's not I, – I had many reasons – to go to rabbinical school, um, sorry, on no front other than proving that a person in an interfaith relationship could be a rabbi. Mm. That is the one front where I was trying to be legit. On, mm. Like I wanted to prove that a person like me, which in this case was me, could be a rabbi because at the time and still now there are not very many rabbis who are themselves in interfaith relationships. But in general, I wasn't, I didn't need to go to like be able to speak up in a Torah study and have people not dismiss me. Somebody who's a Jew by choice, in many contexts, I think there is, even long after they convert, these moments where people feel they are allowed to pull the card of, you might think X, Y, Z, but that's because you didn't grow up this way. You, you didn't have this when you were a child. And so there's just certain things you'll never be able to understand. And, I can't say that there's zero truth to like, yeah, how all of us grow up does have an impact on who we are. Sure. But I think there's a drastic underappreciation of what you described with the freshness and the beginner's mind seeing in Elohai Neshama. Oh my gosh, this is a prayer about how like our souls or our essences are actually good, worthwhile. This notion that we are like bad until we fix ourselves is not the whole story. That's right there and said in liturgy all the time. And I don't think it's hidden. I think it's just hidden when you see it a hundred times and it becomes like your glasses. I don't see my glasses. I don't see the lenses, partially because they're transparent, but also because like they're there all the time. Um, so you did become a rabbi. And on some level, I'm curious if part of that, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is an insincere, like, was there an element of showing people like, not only did I convert to Judaism, I became a rabbi. I'm curious if there's a way that we can notice that impulse, that inclination and serve people who are Jews by choice, who for whatever reason still are coming up against people saying, well, you still don't have access to X, Y, or Z truth. It's an interesting concept. I mean, because I have, look, I've got multiple barriers going on. I'm female. I am not born Jewish. You know, I'm in renewal Judaism, which is not always accepted everywhere. So like I've had people come to me with with rabbinic questions and they're like, but you know, but you're not a real rabbi, air quotes again, because you're a renewal rabbi, because you know, that's not one of mm-hmm. the affiliations or denominations that is legit in Israel. You know, I have to go through all kinds of disclaimers with my conversion students and candidates, you know. This may not hold if you want to move to Israel. This may not hold in a conservative or orthodox community, you know. So just be sure that you want to convert in this style, in this way. 
most of them, actually all of them have said, no, you know, this is my world. This is what I want to do. But I feel like I have to do a lot of buyer's beware stuff because of the, the legitimacy, air quotes again, of can a female rabbi really be legitimate? Can a rabbi who wasn't even born a Jew be legitimate? Well, oh, what's this renewal denomination? I don't, I've never even heard of that. Are you legitimate? So there's a lot of barriers there already and I'm climbing them. So I'd love to flash backward in time a little bit. You mentioned that moment where you and your husband went to synagogue every week for a full year. I'd love to like zoom in to the period that is that year through actually converting. Mm -hmm. What was your experience of those few years? Like, because at that point, you did not think of yourself as somebody who already as an identity was Jewish. What called you to that? And then what shifted to take you from a person that did not see yourself as part of this space, but like you liked, you liked spending time there. You were there every week to somebody who like, oh, this is of me. I am of it. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, yeah, so I, I got fully involved in synagogue life. I was a member of every committee. I knew every congregant. I played mahjong with the older women. <laughs> I, you know, helped clean up the kitchen. I mean, I did everything. I, and then, you know, my rabbi at the time, Rabbi Julie Hilton Danan, she clearly saw, you know, the 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 Jew in me, but she also saw the rabbi in me. But she had me very early on, you know, hey, want to lead our toddler group? Want to do this? Want to be a teacher in the religious school? Want to be the director of the religious school? At some point, we had to move away because Chico was too small for us. But so, yes, there was this period of time where Rabbi Julie actually approached me. She said, I think you're ready to convert. And I, I that was sort of shocking to me. I was like, <laughs> I didn't like what? I don't even know what that means, really. And um, I wasn't ready. And the reason I wasn't ready is there was this packet of information that she gave me. And there was some line in there. And I may this may not be what it actually said. I'm going to say how I remember what it said. You have to relinquish all prior religious practices, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it said even Christmas, but like it, it either said even Christmas or that's where I went in my head. And I wasn't ready to, to give up Christmas. It's like, whoa, that's deep. Christmas? I don't know. Like, I got to think about this, right? And um, we, I did not celebrate any kind of religious or spiritual Christmas, but Christmas in America is its own thing, which is compelling and whatever your associations are with it, it is a big part of American life. And I grew up with decorating Christmas trees and drinking hot cocoa and candy canes. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful time of year. And I just wasn't ready. Um, and so at the same time, I was in this class that Rabbi Julie was teaching when kids were in religious school. It was for the parents. And we came upon a unit called the December Dilemma. What do we do with our kids during this December time, which is so hard? Sure. And um, she talked about how, you know, there's this need during Christmas to decorate things. Well, we decorate things in Judaism. We decorate a sukkah. Like, and I'm hearing her and it sounds really beautiful, but I'm like, you are not selling this. Like decorating a sukkah <laughs> is not like decorating my house for Christmas until my husband and I, because we were also going through all of the holidays very intentionally. Like we're really going to get what all these holidays are about. And Rabbi Julie taught that that four day period between Yom Kippur and Sukkot is very potent. And we're bringing the, each of those days is associated with one of the letters of God's name. And we're bringing down all these attributes that were very high esoteric things during Yom Kippur. And we're grounding them in this world, because, you know, this is where we're living most of the time. It's only on Yom Kippur that we kind of are living as only spiritual beings. 
So I heard all that. that that's interesting. I don't, I'm not buying this until my husband was literally hammering the sukkah. We'd gone through the high holy days. They were beautiful. I learned all about the month of Elul, which is my favorite time of year. Shout out Elul Unbound. And I felt, I literally felt what she was talking about. And then we decorated our sukkah. And then we had some cut Torah. And then we re-put the Torah mantles on the Torahs from, from the, the white of the high holy days to the, re- the regular Torah cover. And I felt in my body and in my heart that same way that I used to feel when we had to take the Christmas tree down. Like this epic period of time from Elul, the month of Elul, which is the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah, through Simchat Torah, has a similar amount of time as Thanksgiving to New Year's, you know, with this big time on the secular calendar. It was at that point, and then I think I uh, I went to TJ Maxx on the day after Thanksgiving and was barraged with the Christmas intensity that I was, it was so different than what I had just gone through. And I said, you know, Rabbi Julie's right. I'm ready now. I'm ready to take this next step. So that's really gorgeous. And I also hate that you had that packet that said you had to relinquish your past a lot. Um, I think it's totally off base. Um, I think it on a bunch of levels. At first off, I think it as somebody who is a Jew who now celebrates Christmas every year. And I'm not doing that as a Christian act. I'm doing that as a person in a romantic relationship with somebody whose family is deeply Christian. And the question I have for you is like, what if you didn't feel that way with Sukkot? Like, what if you experienced the full cycle of the holidays and you love them as so many people, Jews by birth, Jews by choice do. And after that, you still said, you know what? There's things that my body feels. There's things that my heart experiences. There's moments I can have with extended family members or new, or close family members who are not Jewish that either I can't get through just the Jewish side or are easier to get through some of the other religious sides, often Christmas, often Easter, often Christian stuff. I'm curious how we might navigate that because I, I know a lot of Jews by choice who do still have Christmas trees and some of them don't want to talk too loud about that. Um, <laughs> Others of them do. And they want to say, you know what? This is not something about my religious affiliations. And like, how dare us as a Jewish people distill Judaism down to we're the group that doesn't do a set of Christian acts. Like that's such a, that's such a sad definition. It's just like, we're the group that restrains ourselves from doing that as opposed to, okay, sure. You could have a Christmas tree, but like you have a profound Hanukkah practice or you have a profound connection to other Jewish holidays or you have like, an additive relationship. So I guess I don't want to deny that what you said is absolutely the experience of so many people that they, they find elements of, they find vitamins to use Reb Zalman's terminology. They find like spiritual juices in Judaism that they didn't know were there and they thought were easier or only possible to get outside of Judaism. But like sometimes they don't. And I'm not sure that makes them bad Jews by choice or but like, I think that that's should be more okay. So I'm curious how you'd relate to that. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because as the spiritual leader of a congregation where I, you know, Christmas is a big deal in many of our congregants lives where both members of the family are Jewish, where, you know, there's interfaith, you know, just every configuration. And 
you know, I for me, what I love about Judaism is that it really is a a tradition and a spiritual practice of intentionality and and wrestling with things. So I I really feel like what it comes down to is everybody should discern for themselves, but there should be some discernment um, about what all those things mean for them. And at the end of the day, people should have the um, the agency to choose what what speaks to them from a deep spiritual place. And for me. I was I was ready to move on from Christmas. My my mom and my brother, of course, celebrate Christmas. It's beautiful when I go there. I, I don't have that need anymore. But man, it was a big deal for my kids. That that was like whoa. They, there was a lot of pushback on that front, and I was actually not always sure that I was handling that correctly. You know, I held the line. We're a Jewish family. We don't have a Christmas tree. Grandma has a Christmas tree. Uncle Jeff has a Christmas tree. You're very welcome to go and spend time there. Um, that was just a line for me. It's not so simple. It's very contoured and very layered. I'm just sort of wondering, for example, like you you said you were kind of handed this book and it, it had rules and regulations in it about how you convert to Judaism, including things like you have to give up Christmas. I can say for certain in the reform movement, the language that is part of the like I convert it includes a clause about not practicing any other religious traditions. Like that is definitely part of that utterance. Sorry. But there's all kinds of rules and regulations, including, you know, that you have to take an intro to Judaism class and you have to live as a Jew for so long. I mean, different places have different regulations. I'm kind of wondering whether all of these are a form of gatekeeping that maybe we don't need, you Mm -hmm. know, and I've been thinking about the story in the Talmud of, when Rabban Gamliel was the head of the 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 yeshiva, the the study center in the early days of rabbinic Judaism, and he had guards at the gates of the yeshiva, and he had criteria as to who could come in. This wasn't about conversion, although actually I think it really was. But in the story, or the way the story is often taught, he says Rabban Gamliel says that your insides and your outsides have to match. Mm. And there's a way that you can look at that to say, oh, how deep, how beautiful, of course, your insides and your outsides should be the same. But um, but somehow in the story, for a different reason, Rabban Gamliel was, was thrown out of his job and replaced with another rabbi, Elazar ben Azaria, who didn't have those same rules. And the Talmud says that they removed the guards from the gates and then they have a debate about whether 400 or 700 people flooded in. But it was a lot of people who are being kept out of Judaism or kept out of this version of Judaism, this experience of Judaism, because of some set of rules, which turns out the Talmud is saying, actually, those rules weren't so great. And then it says that all the open questions on the floor of the yeshiva that they couldn't resolve were resolved that day. Mm-hmm. And the one example that they give is this story of a convert from the people of Ammon, which the Torah says they're not allowed to convert to Judaism. And he asks if he can become part of the congregation of Israel. And they ultimately say that he can. And so the removal of the gatekeeping of the literal gatekeeping, the first thing they do is remove the other gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm wondering whether there's something here that says, hey, you know, we've been making it kind of hard to convert to Judaism for a long time. Perhaps, and it's fine if you think that the answer is not this, but I'm wondering whether perhaps the increasing number of people converting to Judaism, and I think it's quite clear to me the increasing number of those who are becoming rabbis, Mm. that maybe some of those regulations will change or should change? Yeah, I mean, the, the requirements for conversion 
as I understand them, are a course of study, a Beit Din, which is a, a panel of three judges, learned Jews, um, and a mikvah. I think all of those things are important. The how of how those things are done, I think, is what matters. That can be a very severe and harsh and judgmental and rigorous to the point of not needing to be so rigorous experience, or it can be a a time of mutual discernment for the person who wants to convert and the the rabbi who is assisting in that process to see, like, is this actually a good fit? Is this actually what you want? Being a member of Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, it, it's a very traumatic and painful history that you you become part of that. That's something that needs to be really understood and, and taken seriously what all of that is about. So in my Exploring Judaism class, which is 18 weeks, and then I do require just sort of going through the whole Jewish year, just so you understand it, just so you see what all the different holidays are. What does happen to you during December? Like what kinds of feelings are coming up? Not necessarily because, you know, as you were saying, Lex, that that is something that you have to maybe completely excise from your experience, but just notice what comes up. And to be doing this in a group of peers with other people, so we're learning together. And then the Beit Din, we're actually considering changing the name to a Beit Chesed because Beit Din just sounds so, like just that name is so intense, right? You have to stand before House of Judgment. Yeah, yeah, House of Judgment. Um, really, I wouldn't bring anybody to the Beit Din that I didn't think was um, ready and that this was definitely their path, you know? And I'm kind of assessing, do you have a, a Jewish neshama too? You know, because that's, that's really what the criteria is for me. Is this something that's calling to you? And then it's really just a coming home experience. It's a reclamation of something that is already yours. And then the mikvah, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but an immersive transformative experience where um, you enter as one thing and come out as something else, which can be a very powerful experience. So um, I hear what you're saying that I think there are some experiences of converting that can feel like real gatekeeping and really severe. But I like to make it a, a year of self-discovery and and real beauty and self-exploration for the candidate and for me to get to know them and be accompany them on this beautiful path. I really like what you said about potentially changing the name from Beit Din to Beit Chesed, House of Judgment to House of Kindness. This comes up a lot when we talk about changing the name of things or changing the tone of things. I often want to ask, like, okay, before we change the name... Why is it called this? And might it reflect like some negative things that are negative enough that we actually want to more than change the name. We want to like rethink the whole ritual. And for me, I think the origins of a Beit Dean as House of Judgment were from a place of we are skeptical. We don't know that by and large we are excited or happy or going to be in a celebratory mood about people who are not us becoming us. And the reasons for that were incredibly deeply reasonable in a world where a lot of folks were hostile to Jews and where you, there's a lot to worry about in terms of the other, the folks who are not Jews. Like somebody who is not part of your group wanting to, you know, I'm going to say barge in. It's a different reality than when you're in a context, not that is not that there's no anti-Semitism, there is, but being Jewish today, and we've talked about this in some of our episodes, it is a different kind of reality than even a hundred years ago. And especially, I guess what I'm always struggling with, it comes up with conversion, it comes up with citizenship tests. We are stricter about our thresholds for what makes a Jew by choice a Jew 
than we are about what makes a Jew by birth a Jew. And there's a lot, not just like a smattering, there are a huge number of people who were born to either two Jewish parents or one Jewish parent. There's a lot of those people who, if they were in front of a Beit Din and were asked to like articulate deeply why they are Jewish, I I don't know how they do. And I'm not saying that to disparage them. I'm actually saying that because I think we need to rethink how we orient the whole process. Like, from my perspective, if we are in a citizenship context, if we are asking people to answer a bunch of pop quiz questions about American revolutions and history, and there's a lot of questions that people have to answer, or at least be prepared to answer as part of citizen te- tests in the U.S., that I think most people who, are bo- who have been citizens their whole life would not be able to get. From my perspective, the answer to that is in, oh, let's drill all the people who were born here and have them prove their loyalty. The answer is, let's lower the thresholds across the board and also think about the ways in which being born a thing is not an automatic, oh yeah, you totally have, you're living this reality in a deep way automatically. You know, there's deep Christian debates about this. Like, should people be baptized when they're born? Or, I mean, there's this notion of born again. There's people who have adult baptisms. There's like people who feel passionately theologically that you should actively affirm something as an adult. And I think the benefit of being a Jew by choice is like, you by definition said, I want to be part of this thing. Yeah. I never said that in any organized way. I I would. I'm a person who would. Some other people wouldn't. And so I guess like my takeaway though is like, let's let's not just change the name of Beit Din. Let's think about whether like Having a person go before a panel and be judged, even if we know beforehand that they're basically going to pass, like, we might need a more radical change than that. And how might this reflect ways that we just, on a basic level, expect more of Jews by choice than Jews by birth? So first, the the Beit Chesed idea. You know, I know from my own experience and with the conversion candidates that I work in, people are scared when they hear this idea Mm -hmm. of the bait dean, like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? And am I going to have to take a test? And am I going to have to know everything? And there's no way I can know. It's a fear thing. And we don't want to bring people through something where anxiety and fear is the underlying emotion. This should be joyous, celebratory, and beautiful. I do a lot of work to talk people down um, that know that really... We have it has this name, right? But that's not really what it is. And I use the term Beit Chesed. This is really, you know, we're going to ask you questions about your journey and why you want to be part of um, Am Yisrael. And because we, are, I already know, I already know what your your commitment and your your journey has been. And the the Beit Din, the Beit Chesed, is just going to want to hear about that too. So that is unfortunate, and I think that is something we should work on as spiritual leaders to not make it feel like it's a scary thing. Um, in terms of the distinction between Jews by birth and Jews by choice, you know, I live with a Jew by birth. I am a Jew by choice. And there are times when I feel like, wow, you have the right to like literally do every, anything you want. You can just like throw this tradition to the curb. You can trash this. My, I'm speaking about my husband. Um, you can decide to do this mitzvah or not do this mitzvah, keep kosher, not keep kosher, you know, and you're still Jewish. Like nothing, nothing literally will happen to you. Right. Um, in terms of people questioning your status as a Jew. For me, that feels a little bit of a tighter tightrope to walk. You know, can, I mean, I do keep kosher. That's not an issue for me. But what if, what if, like in classic lifestyle, what if that was an issue for me? What if I didn't want to keep kosher? You know, 
then what? Like, how do people judge a, a rabbi who is making that decision and is is open about that? Um, so there, there feels like there's less freedom to just be a Jew who wrestles with things and makes decisions and and can be whatever kind of Jew I want to be. I do feel like there's less freedom as a Jew by choice. And I wonder about how healthy that is for progressive Judaism that is moving in a direction of having multiple expressions of of just a beautiful diversity of Judaism. Being a good Jew, in air quotes to me, seems to be somebody who is living a very intentional life and making decisions that feel appropriate to the situation. And I think that that's actually the point, is to be on a path that we're considering and thinking about this tradition that is millennia old. How does it interact with where we live and who we are and the era that we're in now? And given all of that, that big cocktail of all of that, what is right for me? What is the right decision for me? Not to toss communal cohesion, because I think that is also extremely important. That becomes part of the wrestling. How how do I balance, you know, my favorite Jewish quote probably of all time, although I say that every time I'm quoting a, a new Jewish quote, is Hillel the Elder. If I am not for myself, who will be? You know, so this is a call to taking care of ourselves as individual people in the world. We have to take care of ourselves. If I'm only for myself, that's not good either. And of course, the final statement, if not now, when? So we need to be wrestling with that, like just continual balancing act of those two things. And I think if we're literally on that tightrope, walking that, that is what it means to be a good Jew, is to be walking that tightrope, not to be so observant that we're never thinking about our decisions and not to just say, ah, all of those uh, meets vote, they don't mean anything. That's not good either. The best Torah life, I think, is to be wrestling. You know, let us wrestle with these words of Torah and make the decisions that feel right, given all the factors that are before us. So I have one closing question, and it relates to the fact that you took as an independent study my This Too is Torah class, which was all about finding Torah in unexpected places. So understanding different realms of human experience, pop culture, sports fandom, music, all sorts of stuff as forms of Torah. and I always struggle with how we go about conversion in a number of ways, but one thing I struggle with is that once people are Jewish, I feel like Jewish gets to be a set of traditional ancient texts and holidays, and it also gets to be, you know, loves and excitements about seeing random Jews on TV shows, or I like this musician because they gave a shout out to Hanukkah, or whatever, like, it it, it starts to be about a lot of things that are not just Torah and holidays and whatever. And like the conversion curricula, the intro to Judaism classes, they're almost always exclusively about, okay, it's really important that you experience the calendar year, you see the holidays. It's important that you have a general sense of the flow of the Torah, the Torah cycle, the five books of Moses, and maybe some other elements of the Bible And it's also important that you know, like, the flow of the prayer liturgy to some extent. You're familiar with how Shabbat services go, etc. If you ask, and we know this from, like, sociological studies, when you ask Jews what makes them Jewish and what they're doing when they're doing Jewish things, so frequently it has nothing to do with synagogue and it has very little to do with ancient texts. On every front from, like, I think conversion classes – look, I'm not here to talk about the Holocaust all the time. Like, I think there should be a meaningful 
engagement with Jewish recent history that is not so much liturgical and is more about just like what what have Jews been up to in the U.S. in you know Israel in other areas of the world Europe Africa Asia South America like. I think we distill everything to like the quote unquote real stuff, but we then place people in contexts where, you know, once they're, you know, official, once they've converted, once they've gone in front of that Beit Chesed or Beit Din, all of a sudden, a lot of people don't want to talk about the holidays or the God stuff or the Torah stuff. They want to talk about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And like, I haven't yet seen an intro to Judaism class that has had as part of the syllabus watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I don't care so much about that show specifically, but I do actually believe that part of intro to Judaism classes should be a general orientation to pieces that we term Jewish culture. And it's thorny because we often, when talking about Jewish culture, make it all Ashkenazi focused. I think we should explicitly talk about that and explicitly upend that and make sure that it doesn't just enshrine white folks as Jewish culture and East European descended folks as Jewish culture. But like, this is a long way of saying, what didn't you get? in your conversion classes that you think would be useful for folks to have in their processes of becoming Jewish? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, you know, I, I had a huge cultural immersion, you know, when I went to college, I had a natural affinity for, um, I had a lot of Jewish friends and, and I had I grew up in rural Northern California, so I had never really met anybody Jewish until I went to UC Berkeley. There was an affinity there already for, for Jewish culture. That was one of the things that really drew me to my husband. We, you know, he has a very Jewish sense of humor. I have the same sense of humor. We like all the same, you know, Jewish shows together, Jewish food, Jewish cooking, all of that. So I was that curriculum I was getting well before I went to, you know, do the formal conversion classes or the kinds of classes you would take as a Jew who's exploring Judaism to for preparation for conversion. I love what you're saying, like having that be a major piece of of what you're learning about because you're right. That is not you're you're learning about Jewish religion and Jewish um I wouldn't even say spiritual practice, Jewish religious practice in the synagogue. You know, that's the main thing that an exploring Judaism class is offering and and some Jewish history and the Jewish calendar. Um but I love that idea and um Lex you and I talked about too that um in that in that class, th- this idea of, and I'm going to use an acronym called JFK Jews, just for kiddish Jews. This is a thing. <laughs> and they're usually, um, when usually when people use that term, it's not a good thing. Oh, they just come for kiddish. Bad, bad. You should have come to the service first if you want to stay for kiddish. Kiddish is the lunch that follows Shabbat morning service. But so much of that cultural cohesion is happening during kiddish. There's Jewish food, Jewish stories are being told, Jewish humor. So it's almost like part of the curriculum should be come for Kiddush. You're going to learn a lot at the Kiddush. Thank you so much, Lisa Rappaport, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you again for having me. Really enjoyed being here. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future, especially to the remainder of our episodes in this mini-series on conversion, which has been incredible so far. We hope that you will send us all your thoughts, your comments, your questions in all the ways I'm going to say in a second. But before I do, a reminder, we've got Elul Unbound that is beginning today. 
Today, Elul Unbound, our month-long initiative, is starting because the month of Elul, the 12th month of the Jewish calendar year, the last one before Rosh Hashanah, starts today. And so we're going to be having weekly Zoom gatherings starting next Friday. We're going to have weekly mini-podcasts, bonus podcasts that come out a few days after our core episodes each week of this month. And really, all of it's going to be awesome. You should join our email list. You should learn more at judaismunbound.com slash E-L-U-L. All of that is at your fingertips. You just got to click with your fingertips to access all of it. So please do. And now all the ways that you can be in touch with us, not just through Elul programming, but through, you know, general programming and social media and emails. So first, our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles, all of those are at Judaism Unbound. Just send us a note there. You can also email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. And of course, check out our website, judaismunbound.com slash podcast for our show notes and uh, just the main website for all sorts of other goodies. judaismunbound.com slash classes for info about the Anyashiva, including our upcoming Elul mini course with Wendy Bernstein-Lash. All of that from our website. So check it out. We also, of course, are deeply appreciative if you're able to send us a financial donation on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift, which you can do via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. We hope that you'll do so again in the near future. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.